Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Seventy criminal justice leaders have signed a statement criticizing U.S. Attorney General William Barr's remarks to the Grand Lodge Fraternal Order of Police's recent 64th National Biennial Conference. Barr attacked recently elected district attorneys who are reforming criminal justice systems around the country, calling their movement, quote, revolving door justice, unquote, which he claimed is, quote, demoralizing to law enforcement, unquote. The criminal justice professionals who signed the statement opposing Barr's comments included current and former elected prosecutors, law enforcement officials, and former Department of Justice and judicial officials. According to the signers of the statement, Barr's law and order views are obsolete. The statement acknowledges that crime in the U.S. has reached all-time lows thanks to reforms designed to reduce incarceration. The statement also says that hard data shows too many cases enter the justice system unnecessarily and that incarceration increases the likelihood that future criminal activity will occur. The statement also notes that communities are safer and healthier because of recent reforms and because prosecutors are treating some so-called criminal activity as a public health issue. Demetrius Grant has now passed the four-month mark of his hunger strike in SCI Albion in Pennsylvania. He went on hunger strike on April 25th to protest racist staff and brutally inadequate access to medical and mental health resources. He's been force-fed for months, a practice decried as unethical by leading medical organizations. This week, we speak on the phone with writer and prison abolitionist Craig Gilmore, who begins by discussing his recent piece in Commune Magazine. The piece is a review of American Prison, a critically acclaimed 2018 book by Shane Bauer. Gilmore critiques the book's thesis on private prisons, and then tells us the ways in which he's seen prison abolition and organizing evolve over the decades. Reflecting on some of the most recent successes, like the fight against a prison in Letcher County, Kentucky, Gilmore also suggests books to read and ways to get involved in anti-prison work in our own local areas, namely the fight against expansions of county jails and ICE detention centers. Here he is. I'm Craig Gilmore. Uh, I'm one of the founders of the California Prison Moratorium Project that has been working for 20 years first to stop California's prison system from expanding, and once we succeeded in that, to try to shrink it as much as possible. In the late 90s, I was part of a group called California Prison Focus, whose main uh, area of organizing was to shut down California's security housing units, which are the maximum security isolation unit prisons within prisons. And at that time, a couple of the people I was organizing with and I were concerned about the fact that the state of California had opened about 20 new prisons in the last 15 years. And the Department of Corrections was had recently projected that they were going to increase the size of the prison population by another 100,000 people in the next five years. And we realized that as important as this work that Prison Focus was 
doing to shut down security housing units, we needed to do something to try to stop the prison system itself from expanding at all, because we didn't think there was any significant work of that sort being done in California. So it was the, you know, the, the general crisis around prisons and just seeing the prison system itself in California and nationwide growing and growing and growing and seeing so few obstacles to keep it from growing even further. And knowing the people inside and knowing families of the people inside, you know, and having a really pretty clear idea about what sorts of damage uh, incarceration of any sort does. So trying to limit and then roll back those sorts of damages that were caused by prisons, by jails, by police. Commune Magazine invited me to review a book called American Prison, which I had not read at the time. I'd read a magazine article, uh, which was sort of the basis, that was published in Mother Jones, won an award that was the basis for the book. By the time I was reviewing the, the book, which was in the spring of this year, the book had been published last year in 2018 and was, you know, had made the New York Times 10 best books list. It was on Barack Obama's favorite books of the year list. Uh, it had gotten a glowing review in uh, National Public Radio. And I was, I was interested in one of the, you know, one of the, I guess one of the questions I went into reading the book itself with was why is the mainstream liberal media in America excited about this prison book of all the books about prisons or jails or police that were published in 2018? Why did this one seem to hit the sweet spot in the liberal media? And I'm including Barack Obama as part of the liberal media in this story. And what I found was that the book, which is an account of Bauer's time as an undercover reporter working in a prison in Louisiana alternates chapters that tell stories of him applying for the job, getting the job, going through training, et cetera, et cetera, his time working at that prison with chapters about the extraction of value from incarcerated people in the United States. Every other chapter is one is about his work in this prison, the other one is about the extraction of labor, uh, the extraction of value, mostly from the labor of prisoners. And then I read some of the other, you know, some of the reviews, like the New York Times review and so on. And it's clear that the response that liberal America gave the book American Prison was to see that the problems with mass incarceration in the United States could be reduced to corporate profit taking, that uh, squeezing costs down as far as possible in order to maximize profits were the cause of a great deal, if not all of the, um, the misery that prisons inflict upon the people who are incarcerated. That messaging and the themes and of the problems of the prison that Bauer brings up in his book are themes that were developed in the early 90s by a group of uh, public sector corrections workers and police workers 
concerned about the possibility of the privatization of the prison sector. And so they formed a sort of think tank, I guess you'd call it, in Florida in the early 90s to generate a sort of propaganda. And I don't mean that in an insulting way, but they, you know, they developed a set of ideas and arguments against the privatization of prisons, which were not against prisons themselves. They were against simply privately run prisons. Uh, and the themes they developed become a lot of the themes in Bauer's book, worse medical care, brutal guards, uh, more escapes, um, much of it understood as lower paid staff means less professional staff means higher staff turnover and this less professional poorly paid staff and the need of management to squeeze more money out of the prison leads to a lot of the abuses that have gotten people upset about the fact that so many people are in prison in the U.S. And that ties into other things going on that have been going on in the U.S. for the last 10 or 15 years, divestment campaigns that are aimed to get pension funds or colleges or universities to divest their, their endowments from prisons, but only from private prisons. So my problem with that, that side of the anti-prison movement, that side of the anti-private prison movement, was then my same, the same problem I had with Bauer's book, which I thought reinforced their messaging, which is that if we could remove the private prison players, we would have a more humane system or we would have a smaller system. And I believe neither of those is the case. The, the question of why there's a there's a general understanding that um, or widespread understanding about why um, private prisons are the the major problem or, or a problem that if we solve would solve much more of the 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 other prison problems is a difficult one. I mean, part of it has to do with I think the very good work, very effective work that this anti-private prison think tank in Florida has been doing since the early 90s. And I guess I also think that, you know, it's easy, it's easy for people to be against money-grubbing corporations. You know, if you've, if you've seen one Michael Moore movie, or if you, right, I mean, you know, th there are book buttons there to push, I think, for large parts of the American public. And if you say, a corporation did this because it was greedy. They accept that. But the fact is that in the U.S. prison population, only 8% of the people held in prison are being held in private facilities, private prisons. And in the jail population, it's much lower than that. It's around 1% or 2%. So we're really talking, you know, a campaign that's aimed at 5 or 6 or 6 7% of the number of people who are locked in prison, imagining that if we could beat these private prison operators back, we would have made some progress. A few years ago, in an attempt to get people to sign a petition for exactly this purpose, uh, the organization Color of Change um, celebrated the fact that the year before, campaigns like theirs had pushed six states to 
cut their contracts with private prisons. And they listed the six states. And this was, you know, it's like, we're winning, help us win even more, was sort of the messaging that they gave us. Well, I looked at the prison populations in those six states. This was in 2011, 2012. So in the year 2012, the U.S. prison population as a whole went down. But in five of the six states that had made public the private prisons or put people, taken people out of private prisons and put them back into public prisons, the prison population in five of the six states had gone up and not gone down. So defeating the privates had done nothing to lead to decarceration. It had done nothing to shrink or weaken the prison industrial complex. And that to me is the the lack of strategy that uh, the anti-private prison movement shows, that they've got this target. They're, they're very effective in publicizing what the target is and how terrible it is. But in doing that, they ignore oh, well over 90% of the people who are locked up, who are locked up under equally horrendous conditions. I mean, the, the anti-private prison think tank puts out, there was this, you know, there was a gladiator fight at a private prison in Idaho. Well, there was. And they got the idea of doing that from a public prison in California where prison guards put sworn enemies out in the yard together, forced them to fight, and shot one or both of the, the incarcerated men who were fighting. And the prison guards at Corcoran prison in California, public prison, bet on the outcome of those fights and bet on who would be killed. One of the takeaway messages of my, my review is that not only are profits not the, the, the driving force or the problem of American prisons, prisons themselves are the problem. And to take up a campaign that imagines some of them are much, much worse by virtue of being private rather than public just ignores the atrocities in public prisons around the country. So some people think that, that the problem with prisons is the profit being derived from them. And if we could remove that profit, we could solve some or all of the problem with prisons. And it ignores the fact that the, the, the real problem with prisons, which I tried to argue in, that, in the review in Commune, the real problem with prisons are prisons themselves that public prisons and private prisons share the same problems, the same levels and sorts of violence that are imposed daily on the people who are locked in them. When I, when I worked at California Prison Focus, uh, we helped publicized the fact that a, a prison guard at uh, California State Prison Corcoran, where there's a security housing unit, smuggled security tapes out of the prison, was chased 100 miles up the highway by other guards, but managed to get them to the FBI. And those tapes showed prison guards shooting male prisoners who were in a small exercise yard wearing their wearing only underwear, having fist fights or wrestling with each other. I mean, it was a fight. They were fighting in the yard, but they were fighting without weapons. And they were forced to fight by the guards who put them in the yard together. 
that was a public prison. That was in the late 90s. Yeah. And we we helped break that story. We produced a movie about it. Um, there were legislative hearings. You know, various people got fired. But people are still, you know, our goal back then was to shut down the security housing unit. It wasn't simply to make the security housing unit slightly more humane by stopping these gladiator fights. But yeah, that was that was almost 20 years ago. As I said earlier, 20 years ago, I think those of us who started uh, California Prison Moratorium Project were concerned, were so concerned about the incredible growth of the California prison system that we had we had only one goal, which was to stop that growth. And having first slowed and then stopped the growth, our next step beyond that was to try to shrink the number of people inside. So that's sort of where I was and a number of the people I was working with in the late 90s. Soon thereafter, I would say the first big change that happened uh, with anti-prison organizing and especially abolitionist uh, organizing happened soon after the turn of the century when Insight Women of Color Against Violence challenged us and said, we, Insight, are supportive of what you're trying to do, but we are concerned that you are not taking seriously the harm, the interpersonal harm that uh, is happening, and especially the harm that is being inflicted on women of color. And so the result of that, that challenge was a document, the critical resistance, Insight Critical Resistance Statement of the early aughts, 2000, I wanna say 2001, but something like, something around there, in which critical resistance and insight laid out the need for both shrinking the mechanisms of state violence like police and prisons, but also dealing with, finding ways to deal with interpersonal harm that did not involve police, prison, probation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think that was the first big step. Since then, which I would say growing out of the, the insight side of that, that statement, there's been a, just a ton of work about what uh, interpersonal and community accountability processes might look like and how they might work. Um, basically trying to grow within our current society to grow an alternative to policing courts and prisons as ways to deal with interpersonal harm. So not necessarily to deal with state inflicted harm, but if I steal your car or if you beat me up, how are we gonna deal with that without the police? And I think that for the last uh, at least 15 years, maybe 18 years, there's been an enormous amount of work. You know, a, a lot of that work is coming out of Chicago. I associate a lot of it with uh, Mariam Cabo, who was in Chicago for a long time and is in New York now. And I guess the third thing I would say is that 20 years ago, the, the movement against prisons and police, you could, you could largely divide into two, two camps that had only a little bit in common. They, they overlapped only a little bit. So there were sort of liberal groups like the ACLU who were mostly concerned about are people being treated fairly in the justice system? Are people getting a fair trial? Uh, are people being interrogated by the police fairly? Uh, are police following procedures when they pick people up? 
and conditions in prisons and jails. So are people being mistreated when they're in their cages? Uh, and then on the other side, there were the prison abolitionists who were trying to you know, eliminate the, the prison industrial complex completely um, and in the short run to shrink it significantly. The abolitionist world has grown amazingly in the last 20 years. There are abolitionists everywhere. And people refer to themselves as abolitionists when, when I hear them talk about what their prison politics is. I can't imagine quite how they self-label as abolitionists. But So there's this odd kind of, the, the category includes a lot more people and it includes people who with very, very different sorts of political orientations uh, to the prison system. At the same time, the prison reform movement, which is to say the, the, the more liberal side of the movement, has grown significantly. And a lot of those organizations have taken up uh, a lot of the language that has been developed by prison abolitionists, and they're using it for specifically non-abolitionist purposes. Uh, and here I would go back, back to, you know, organizations like the Color of Change that reminds the people who get its, its fundraising emails how big and terrible the U.S. prison system is. We have to do something to shrink it dramatically, and therefore we need to attack private prisons. It's like, well, You've taken a, a critique of the prison system that came out of the abolitionist movement, and you're using that for a very non-abolitionist political program. I mean, I think there's actually a lot of really great campaigning going on across the country. I mean, I guess the first place I would point would be the the pair of nationwide prison strikes uh, that's happened, organized by people who are incarcerated. And, you know, I would encourage people who are maybe new, new to that story or have only maybe scratched the surface of the story to read the demands of the first strike and read the demands of the second strike and think about the ways that the, incar the incarcerated people who wrote those demands, who argued them out among themselves, how the demands changed over the few years between the first strike and the second strike and what that means. Like, it's, it's very, it was very interesting to me to watch the, the kind of political change and growth of that, that, I don't even know what to call it, an organization, I guess, but the you know, very diverse organization of people in different prisons across the country. So that's the first thing I would point to. I would point to the campaign uh, and again, this is happening kind of on a number of different fronts, but the campaign to eliminate cash bail, I would point to the campaign to eliminate the use of electronic monitors and in general, sort of alternatives to incarceration that, that maybe do not put people in cages, but put people and increasingly more people under state surveillance and control. There are campaigns against specific prisons. So uh, there was a, a you know, a, a federal prison in Kentucky that has been planned to be built for many years now, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons finally pulled the plug on it because of uh, significant on-the-ground organizing in rural Kentucky. Publishing about prisons has become, you know, a, a mini industry in and of itself. 
So I guess what I would recommend to people really depends on where they are. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there are some people who've been working on this topic for 40 years and have been reading everything that comes out for 40 years. There are some people who, you know, may be new to the new to the topic uh, and are maybe where do I start? How do I get the overview? What, what can I see? So for the latter, I mean, my favorite, it's not all that new anymore, but my fa- I'm still going to call it a recent book. Marie Gottschalk's book, Caught, is a really good kind of chapter-by-chapter chapter overview of the U.S. prison police jail system in, I don't know, 15 chapters. And each chapter gives you an overview of what's going on. It gives you an overview of what the, what the issues are. It gives you a sense of where you might intervene politically if, you, if, you, you know, if you're not already engaged. My favorite book last year was a book called uh, Police, a Field Guide. The thesis of the book is that the way we think about police, and even those of us who are critical of police, the way we think about police is shaped by what they call cop speak. And the purpose of the book is to destroy cop speak, to give us ways of understanding the language the police use and the police people who write about the police, how to, how to like break that language down and see it for what it is. And so it's, a, it's sort of a dictionary, which makes it sound dull, and it's not. It's actually mean and pointed and very funny. And it has, I don't know, say 100 entries about just the language that you see every day in the newspaper, and it's a different way to think about those words, and therefore a different way to think about who the police are and what the police do. People who are new to the, you know, new to um, prison or police organizing are sometimes confused about where to get started. And one thing I would, you know, there there are national organizations, there are statewide organizations, but one thing I would encourage people to do is to look at wherever they're living now, as the prison population in the U.S. has leveled off, declined, leveled off. There's been a rash of jail construction happening across the country. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of counties are building bigger jails. And part of the plan for those new jails is that they're going to lease some of that space to um, the Federal Bureau of Prisons or to the Federal Marshal Service or to ICE or to their own State Department of Corrections. So, for example, in Louisiana now, the largest percentage of state prisoners are held in county jails, not in private prisons. There are far more state prisoners held in county jails than there are in private prisons in Louisiana. So that's a, that's a thing you can do locally. There's a very good chance your county or the next county over is considering building another 100 cells or another 200 cells. And one of the ways they're going to justify that economically is to say, this is going to pay for itself because we're going to be able to get ICE prisoners. So for people who have been horrified at the stories of detention along the border, the alternatives to those detention centers are being built in your counties right now. They're not going to be any 
be more humane than the ones on the border. And that's a place where you can intervene locally to make sure that those cells, those cages are not built. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.